two propositions. One, during at least three of his four years in the Oval Office, Donald Trump presided over a talented and successful administration. Two, the Republican Party should never nominate that man for president again. Former Attorney General William P. Barr on his new book, One Damn Thing After Another. Uncommon Knowledge, now. Welcome to Uncommon Knowledge. I'm Peter Robinson. William P. Barr grew up in New York City, earned his bachelor's and master's degrees from Columbia University, and then earned his law degree from George Washington University. From 1991 to 1993, while still in his early 40s, Mr. Barr served as Attorney General of the United States under President George H. W. Bush. Just over a quarter of a century later, he returned to the Department of Justice, reluctantly, as we will see, to serve from 2019 to 2020 as Attorney General for President Donald J. Trump. Mr. Barr's new book, One Damn Thing After Another, Memoirs of an Attorney General. General Barr, welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Peter. It's great to join you. Christine Barr. Yes. Mrs. Barr, <laughs> when you told her President Trump was <clears throat> considering you for Attorney General, I'm quoting you. This is your wife. The left and the press have lost their minds over Trump, and Trump is his own worst enemy. Any sacrifice you make will be wasted on this man. Close quote. Was your wife wrong? Uh, not really. No, she was not wrong. She was not wrong. Right. All right. But uh, I, would, I don't regret doing what I did. Okay. Well, I, yeah. First, why on earth you did it? You didn't need yeah. the money. Right. You didn't need the reputation. You didn't need the trouble, and your very sweet, very tough wife warned you against it. You took the job anyway. How come? Well, I thought uh, the country was headed toward a constitutional crisis. I, th I was skeptical about the Russiagate narrative, and I thought it was being used to cripple his administration and drive him from office. Uh, or at least I was concerned about that. And uh, the more I learned about it, the more I became concerned about it. No one, uh, the institutional lawyers, the establishment lawyers were not coming to the aid of the president. He was not being given his due as president. And uh, in this respect, I think he was more sinned against than sinner. They created a feeding frenzy around his administration. And uh, when Sessions left, they needed an attorney general who could stabilize the situation and provide leadership at the department. And uh, I tried to throw up other names and push some other candidates, but at the end of the day, he continued to say he wanted to talk to me about it. And I wouldn't go in to talk to him unless I had already made up my own mind that I would take it. Hard to tell a president no. Right. Uh, one damn thing after another, again, I'm quoting you. Whatever Trump's failings, there was one thing I was sure of. Hillary Clinton was not morally superior to Donald Trump. Right. I, Explain that. Well, I was never a never-Trumper. Uh, I thought 2016 was a critical time, and I supported other people for the nomination, starting with Jeb Bush, who I had become friends with when mm -hmm. I served under his father. Uh, but, uh, and, and the last, my last choice was, was Trump, and I saw Trump's faults, and uh, he had his share, but I also felt that he was, elections are a choice between two candidates, and I thought he was superior 
to Hillary Clinton. So I thought, well, you know, I could never understand never Trumpers. I mean, just on the basis of the Supreme Court appointments and the judiciary, it was important that uh, he win the presidency. All right. You say you were suspicious of Russiagate. We should note, former Senator Jeff Sessions is attorney general for roughly the first two years mm -hmm. of the four, and you're attorney general for roughly the last two of the four. Right. And so for those first two, you were watching the president of the United States pinned against a wall, so to speak, right. by this Russiagate narrative. And you're suspicious, as an outsider, you're suspicious of it from the get-go. How right. come? Because it never made, you know, I had started off in the CIA and, <clears throat> and it never made sense to me that the Russians would have had to collude or wanted to collude with someone to engage in a, what, what is called a hack and dump operation, hack into some emails and then make them public. It's a pretty simple thing just to embarrass them. They don't need to collude with anyone to do that. It's their stock and trade. And so it just never made any sense that they would and the stuff that was being thrown out just didn't add up to me. Um, and uh, the more I saw, the more it just uh, uh, appeared to be a phony scandal. All right. You say the more that you saw, and of course, when you become attorney general, you're in a position to see a lot. Right. The book, I have to say, the book is a, um, the book is a lot of things. It's a personal narrative that begins with. I thought it was just a fascinating account of what it was like to be a little kid. <laughs> in Morningside Heights mm -hmm. in the 1950s. Yeah. I mean, this is a life story. Mm -hmm. But it's also a just engrossing narrative of what it was like during those years. So mm -hmm. I'm not going to go through all the details of Russiagate. We couldn't, right. we'd get bogged right. down the right. road. Right. But, but let me ask you, here's what we now know. Here's a little bit of what we now know. The FBI. We now know that the FBI launched an investigation into the Trump campaign without anything approaching an adequate legal predicate for doing so. Correct me if I'm wrong about any of this. Well, we, I, I agree with that. Yeah, There's I'm taking that from this, yeah. from, from, all right. Yeah. We now know that the FBI understood soon enough that the Steele dossier was at least suspect, but it used that dossier before a FISA court anyway. We now know that at least one FBI agent in at least one instance doctored evidence. We know that a very senior FBI officials were using official email accounts to exchange texts denouncing President Trump even after he became president-elect for blatantly ideological reasons. How could all this have happened? This, this, we have one of our intel agencies, intel and law enforcement agencies, where integrity and bipartisanship is required almost more than any place else except perhaps CIA and, and the Department of Defense. And this operation stinks from the very first moment one, one begins reading about it as you're learning the details. How could this have happened? Well, Durham is supposed to make the judgment as to whether or not this was undertaken in good faith and it was an example of overzealousness to protect the integrity of you, the election. You better take one second to tell us who Durham oh, is. Oh, Durham is the special counsel that I appointed to look into how this got going, how this whole right. Russiagate narrative got going and why and why people did what they did, especially the FBI. And uh, he's going to have to make a determination. Was this a uh, overzealousness and that did they have good motives or was this an example of uh, 
abuse going after the president for political motives, essentially, or institutional motives. <clears throat> That's what he's supposed to determine. But when I look at all the facts, as I've said all along, it's inexplicable to me how this got going, especially after the election. I mean, I, I, I'm troubled by what happened before the election. Right. But after the election, when the dossier started falling apart, when they found out that the only source for it, this so-called principal subsource, had been under investigation for being a Russian agent, uh, and, and that he was saying that the stuff that was reported by Steele was not facts, but really just sort of their speculation, uh, they still went ahead pushing on the administration, going after Flynn, and so forth. Uh, but proving criminal intent in these kinds of cases is, some, is sometimes very difficult. Um, am I allowed to ask? You're, you're being very judicious. Hard to persuade you not to after a lifetime of, <laughs> of, of professional training. Am I allowed to ask you if it smells bad to you? Well, it smells bad, but, uh, okay. but I'm not going to state what I think. The, what you, won't I, say, yeah. you won't call yeah. them criminals. Right. All right. That's for, that's for uh, Durham to figure out. Okay. James Comey, director of the FBI. Again, just a few particulars. He permitted the FBI to investigate Trump, once again, without anything approaching an adequate legal predicate. He briefed President-elect Trump on the Steele dossier, and then either he or somebody very close to him leaked the fact of the president's having been briefed to the press, giving the press a hook to publish the dossier, to start talking about, the, to ramp up the whole Russiagate uh, phony charges. Comey permitted agents to question incoming national security advisor Michael Flynn in what you make clear was an improper manner. Comey repeatedly assured President Trump that Trump himself was not the subject of any investigation, but refused to confirm that to the press. After President Trump fired him, Comey gave one-sided notes on several of his conversations with the president to somebody he knew would in turn leak the notes to the press. You write that Donald Trump saw James Comey as a grandstander, and you approve of that view. It's right. a view you take. But isn't it, this is worse than grandstanding, isn't it? Well, you're... You're trying to get me to <laughs> come to the, the bottom line conclusion, but I, it, I really don't feel I can do that. Uh, you know, I, I launched the investigation and, and I was the attorney general and it was taking place under me. I think the behavior was outrageous, outrageous behavior uh, by Comey and the, uh, some other higher ups at the FBI. But whether it was criminal remains to be uh, determined by uh, okay, I get that, but but if you if it strikes you, I mean, I I'm just reading this, and um, to me it is stunning, and and I understand people's uh, being upset uh, by the behavior of the FBI. And one of the questions I get most frequently out around the country is, what happened to the FBI, and how can we turn it around? All right, so partly I think for reasons of professional training, and partly maybe because the way. <coughs> Mrs. Barr raised you, you're very calm in most of this. Mm -hmm. And there are passages where I think, gee, the only thing that's, that's missing here is real anger. He must have been white hot angry about this. Which brings us, of course, to the Mueller report. Mm -hmm. Now, now you're Attorney General. Mueller's been investigating this Russiagate 
stuff for two years, and he issues the report. Mm -hmm. He divides it into two parts. One is charges that Trump and his campaign colluded with Russia. No evidence that they did so. Two years. The country's in tight and knots. No evidence that Trump colluded with the Russians. The second part deals with 10 instances that raised questions of obstruction of justice, so the report claimed. And as you say in one damn thing after another, that's rather odd. It's a little difficult to suggest <laughs> obstruction of justice when there was no underlying crime in the first place. Like, what justice are you trying to obstruct? Mm -hmm. And this second part states, while this report does not conclude that the president committed a crime, it also does not exonerate him. Close quote. What did that one sentence do to the presumption of innocence? Right. <clears throat> well, the whole second volume dealing with so-called obstruction, he flipped the burden of proof uh, to the president to prove he was innocent versus the government to prove there was a crime. So it's not his purpose to exonerate, you know, to find evidence that he can say, I've exonerated you. That's not the job he That's was asked to do. That's not his job. His job is to say, is there evidence sufficient to bring a, a criminal charge against him? Okay. Now, I've learned that I can get you to use the word outrageous. Was that outrageous? Uh, I believe uh, Mueller's stewardship of the investigation was outrageous. All right. I, I think he, there were a number of things that I thought were inexcusable when he went out and hired a lot of partisan Democrats, headhunters, basically, uh, who, uh, which completely undercut the whole purpose of his appointment, which was to reassure, reassure the, public. the public this was going to be above politics. And he went and he, and, he, and he made half the country think this thing was a political witch hunt. Um, and then his whole, you know, I think by the time he came in in May uh, of 2017, people pretty much knew there was no collusion. I don't think very much more had to be do done to, to, to nail that down. And yet he started going down this path of obstruction and the things he used to start that were things which he later essentially had to admit were not, could not be obstruction, which is firing Comey and this comment he made to call me, it, you know, I, I hope you can see your way, way clear to uh, letting, Flynn le off. letting Flynn off. Right. Uh, and those were neither, neither of those could be obstruction, but that was the basis he used to start and protract the investigation. He did a great disservice to the country. I think he knew very quickly there was no collusion. And I think he stretched the thing out for two years, essentially bootstrapping up, you know, new claims of obstruction. The president's sitting there. He knows this thing is, is bogus from day one. He knows there was no collusion. And yet they're dragging the thing out with all this, these silly obstruction, uh, you know, esoteric legal theories as to how they could catch the president on obstruction. Made the president much more mad. And, you know, he maybe do, does stupid things, but they're not obstruction of justice. So the whole thing was, was a disservice to the country. All right, let me take, uh, speaking of disservices, there's a disservice to you here. This may seem like a procedural detail, but I found, I, again, I found this fascinating. You're meeting with Mueller and his top assistants mm -hmm. a few weeks before they tell you they're getting close to re releasing the report. And you raise the question of redaction. Mm 
they will know because they're working on the report and they have, they've been spent two years with these materials, there are certain legal requirements, certain kinds of material must not be made public and they will know exactly what that material is. So you ask them to do the redacting before they send the report to you at justice because if you get an unredacted report, it's going to take your people three weeks to go through the material. And Mueller looks you in the eye and says, of course, we'll redact it. Mm -hmm. And then he sends it over to you. And the press discovers that he's finished his report and that it's in your hands. And it's not redacted. Right. And the, the whole world knows that you're holding on to this report. So you send a note to Congress saying there's no evidence of collusion. And Mueller raises the question of obstruction, but does not exonerate the president. You give a very, very brief summary. Special counsel found no collusion by any Americans in IRA's illegal activities. Quoting what he's Quoting the was. report. Yeah. And you send that out. So first of all, he told you to your face that he'd redacted and he didn't. You do your best to give the press, the public Congress, some understanding of what's in the report. And then Mueller attacks you for mischaracterizing the report. Right. And when you finally do complete the redactions and make the report public, it's clear you didn't mischaracterize anything. But uh, the this, media continued to say that I had mischaracterized. But this, this but it's Bob Mueller had, as I've never met the man, but he has a Princeton grad, serves with, uh, honorably in Vietnam, 12 years as director of the FBI, and somehow or other he's reduced to a partisan hack by, this, <coughs> by the time of this episode. Is that not fair? Well, um, I, I'm not even so much interested in him personally as what on earth is going on during these years? Everybody seems to become his own well, worst self. Well, as I said, the president isn't far from wrong when he calls, called this a witch hunt. It, it's very much like a witch hunt, what happened. They were out to get the president. FBI agents who were working on it <clears throat> have said that it was the exact opposite of what a bona fide investigation would do. They made up their mind there was a crime they were going to prove, and then they were scrounging around to find something to, to prove that crime. So it was, it was very That's wrong. That's the way Stalin's happened. purges operated. Yeah. I think it was very wrong what happened. And part of it may have been that Mueller was not hands on and was not paying adequate attention to what was going on. All right. So you write again that Mueller's testimony, he testifies to Congress in July of 2019. And by the end of that day, it's all over. And part of the reason is that Bob Mueller is easily confused. He seems to become tired. Uh, he's not the man he used to be. So is it the case that his staff took advantage of a man who was not his former self? It appeared to me that his staff was not tightly supervised. Right. But, the, but I'll, I'll say this. The damage, a lot of damage was done to this country by the pendency of this nonsense for two, for two years. Uh, we couldn't engage in normal diplomatic relations with Russia and so forth. Some of what we're seeing today perhaps is the consequence of not being able to, you know. To uh, talk to them. Yeah, to talk to them and try to work out diplomatic solutions to their concerns and our concerns. And instead, we weren't able to do that throughout the first term. And then when Biden came in, it was irresistible for Putin to grab what he could. 
But uh, there was a big cost to the country for this nonsense. And, uh, you know, I, I think that, that Mueller has to take some responsibility for that. All right. The first impeachment. Again, I don't want to go through all the details, but it'll take a moment or two to set this up. Late July 2019, President Trump has a telephone call with a man nobody had ever heard of at that point, Ukrainian <laughs> President Zelensky. Now we know the name. Trump asks Zelensky for help investigating a couple of matters, including whether as vice president, Joe Biden had pressed the Ukrainian government to fire an anti-corruption prosecutor who was investigating a Ukrainian oil and gas company on the board of which sat Hunter Biden, Joe Biden's son. So the president has this conversation. He seems to lean on Zelensky Speaker <clears throat> Pelosi immediately announces, first of all, it's the, it, this is made public. I, that's one question. How common is it for 30 people to be listening to a conversation the President of the United States has with one of his counterpart heads of state? That was typical. That is typical, right. right. But, but it didn't have to be. I mean, the President could have uh, reorganized things at the White House once he understood that the national security community was leaking like a sieve during his administration. All right. So Speaker Pelosi announces a House inquiry. They find that President Trump solicited foreign interference in the 2020 campaign, which of course hadn't happened yet. The Democrat-controlled House impeaches the president by 230 to 197 votes. The Republican-controlled Senate acquits him by 52 to 48. That's the first impeachment. One damn thing after another. While the effort to push the Ukrainians to investigate Biden was foolish, I do not believe it was criminal. Explain that, just for, for the layman, uh, for this non-lawyer you're talking to. Well, uh, the, the theory here was that when uh, a country like Ukraine does something that's politically beneficial to a president, that that should be viewed as a campaign contribution. Okay, and what I try to point out is the whole nature of it's a very slippery slope to go down that. It hasn't been done in the past and the implications are, are pretty mortifying because diplomacy by its nature is quid pro quo. Right. You do this for me and I'll do this for you. Frequently presidents are seeking to accomplish and get a deal with a foreign country that is politically beneficial to them, right. that will help them. Like, return the hostages, can I get these hostages back before the election, and so forth. Uh, and so uh, to, to say that, that, I that diplomacy, uh, quid pro quos, uh, are a crime in the solicitation of a political contribution would essentially get the criminal justice process right in the thick of diplomacy, and it's crazy. Right. It's crazy. Right. Two quotations from one damn thing after another. In one sense, the call with Zelensky didn't matter. If it weren't that, it would have been something else. They were going to get President Trump. Mm -hmm. Trump's, but President Trump's impeachment, the first impeachment, was a self-inflicted wound. All right, now we have the problem with this man. Well, it's, it was one of the problems. <clears throat> you know, I give him a lot of credit in that book. This is not an anti-Trump screed. I supported him, and I think he played an important role in history of blocking the, you know, the, the march through the institutions that the, the progressives had been conducting and, 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 and stopping it. But uh, he also had a lot of flaws. And one of them was that 
uh, the kind of thing that he was doing in Ukraine, when, when he was told no by people, that something was wrong or uh, could be uh, get too close to the line and the law and so forth, he would sometimes try to jury-rig these end runs using private actors like Rudy, Rudy Giuliani Giuliani. and others. And he had this outside coterie of people who were dying to, you know, be consigliaries to the president and they didn't have to take accountability or responsibility for it. And, you know, they would run these operations. And the two most visible examples of this are Ukraine, which got him impeached, and January 6th, this whole effort to uh, reverse the results of the election, you know, setting up a war room in the Willard Hotel with Steve Bannon and Rudy Giuliani and, and this outside coterie of people. And so, so while you're giving him credit, and you give him a lot of credit, could I try, let, let me try a schema out for you. This is just the way it occurs to me, and I wasn't there. I was sitting in California. the first three years of the Trump administration, if you can set aside the tweets, uh, the personnel, and by the way, I have friends who are journalists in Washington, and he drove them, I mean, there are people who really, in some kind of basic way, went out of their minds. Yes. Who were on our side, friends of ours. Right. And I, part of that is they were in, I believe they were in Washington, and some of them were in newsrooms where there's mm -hmm. a screen right up here, and his tweets keep flipping past on the screen and his face keeps I was in California so I'm, I, I'll stipulate and for me it was easier to set him aside and look at the policy he gets a corporate tax cut the economy actually grows quite briskly for the first time in decades there were gains in real income for working Americans he gets the Abraham Accords in the Middle East which represent Best I can tell, any dispassionate diplomat considers that a considerable breakthrough. Right. He talks nice to Putin, but in fact, he actually moves as part of a NATO operation. He moves American troops into Poland, bordering Russia, takes a hard line with Russia. He achieves something that no one else had yet achieved in American politics, and that is a bipartisan consensus that China is now trouble. For decades, the consensus was we can work with them, let's bring them along, they'll become democratic. It's not working. And by the Trump, by the second year of Trump, everybody's, even Democrats, are trying to figure out how they can look tough on China. Now, a liberal may dislike all this, but from a certain point of view, a conservative point of view, that was a very successful. And, and immigration, he doesn't build the yeah. wall, but immigration begins to drop off. He gets new resources. To, well, pretty successful. He, he basically got control of the border, and he had to do it against scorched earth opposition by judge, liberal judges in Congress. He got control of the border. And uh, the other thing is our military had been hollowed out. We didn't have enough ammunition to fight minor skirmishes and he restored the military strength. There's a whole litany of things that he did. My, my resignation letter, I went through them. He said, boy, this is really good. And I thought to myself, yeah, I wish you talked about him during the campaign. But um, So we got yeah. three really good years. Or, or even more. I mean, I, the bottom line is that, uh, you know, 
he, 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 if you discount what he talked about and his excessive rhetoric and his verbal diarrhea. If you turn off Twitter to begin right. with, right? His verbal diarrhea. And, right. then you, and then you also say that his bad ideas that he threw out there were, were not implemented. He got talked out of them. He listened, at the end of the day, he listened to reason. What he actually accomplished were, was remarkable. And uh, so uh, I think his policies were sound. All right. Yeah. Then, again, I'm uh, continuing with this schema. I've got just two more points in this schema here. Then COVID hits. Mm -hmm. And this is not so good because here Donald Trump effectively cedes authority. He effectively cedes the presidency to the public health authorities who lock down the country. They impose massive costs. We'll be decades recovering from this. And the benefits We'll see, but at the moment it looks as though at the most, here and there, in a few cases, they may have slowed somewhat the spread of COVID, but that's the best it now appears that they accomplished. By the way, here's, this is you on Anthony Fauci. He struck me as a consummate bureaucrat with a huge ego and a penchant for self-promotion. And this is the man to whom Trump hands the country. This is not too good. This does not reflect well on Trump. So, you know, my, my view is that there are many issues on which Trump had sort of good sound judgment, issues like crime or immigration. But um, on some issues that were very complicated and have involved a lot of different trade-offs, uh, and he couldn't, he didn't couldn't have a sense. Couldn't see easy way through. Yeah, and he didn't really have a sense of how to handle it. He, he wouldn't make decisions. He would not lead. He would hang back and allow things to develop and then sort of snipe at people, but not stand out in front and lead. And I sort of contrast this with DeSantis on COVID. I'm, I'm not for anybody at this stage uh, for the presidency in 24, but I would just point out that when look at DeSantis, he actually went out and hired a public health advisor for himself, who's really, who was really was sharp, very impressive. very impressive guy. Young, well-spoken, yes. thoroughly trained. Right. Then he made very tough decisions that sometimes looked like they might backfire on him, but he stuck to his guns. He made the tough calls. He stuck with them, and he turned out to be right. That's leadership, and you know Trump did essentially the opposite. There was a lot of floundering. People were telling him he should bring in more advisors from the private sector and get some different views, but he, he made Fauci the face of COVID. Now, all that being said, I think COVID affected the election in the sense that, but for COVID, he would have coasted to victory because yes, it was just because of the economy. Be, right. You know, and the, his high water mark was the State of the Union in February two thousand twenty. But um, by the way, it should noted that should be noted that, despite the way that mouth sometimes worked, he was capable of giving very good speeches. Yeah, that was his that best was speech. speech. I always thought that was his best speech. Right. But but. Um, so then in, in, in uh, 2020 comes along and it, it, it threw him off, but I still think he could have won. Uh, I think COVID, he, he could have shown a little bit more leadership in, in COVID, but I think ultimately uh, why he lost was uh, that he, he antagonized a critical block of Republican and independent voters in the suburbs. That was the margin of difference. And he was told that for, for a whole year. Mm. Two things that he was warned about in 2020. Uh, 
One, he was told that he had to get a, a very aggressive legal team in place uh, to prepare for the elections uh, to challenge some of the rule changes that were being made in states like Pennsylvania and Georgia. One of his aides went in and said, look, you need to put, set up a fund of $20, 30000000 million in escrow because lawyers don't trust you to pay their bills. And you need to get a top-of-flight firm in here the way you did in your first run in 2016 to, to fight these battles all around the country. And he ignored that advice. He did not have a, a legal team prepared to go and fight around the country. So a lot of these uh, bending of the playing field were his own fault. The second thing he was warned about is that he had to do something about the suburbs because that was his Achilles heel and that would ultimately cost him the election. And he thought that he could make up for that gap just by getting out his base. And the way he chose to energize his base, which I think was gratuitous and unnecessary, was to do it in a way that even made... Made them even worse. Yeah, yeah. And so what, what Trump represents is someone who's taken the Republican Party and pitted one part of it against the other as if they're mutually exclusive uh, groups, and they're not. Uh, there's, no, there's no reason uh, that they have to be mutually exclusive. So is this part of um, the new technology of politics? Here's what I mean. Richard Nixon used to say, in the primaries, you have to run to the right, and then in the general, you move to the center. And that's roughly the way it worked for decades. Mm -hmm. Ronald Reagan, in his campaign speeches, he would finish talking to the Republicans, and then there would almost always be a now a word for my for Democrats listening. I used to be a Democrat myself. And this trying to bring more people in, you, you, you dominate the center, and then you try to add to it from either side. Trump's not the only one who's saying, ah, the heck with that. I'm just going to try to get the vote count up on my base. I, you tell me what you see, but I can't see any other explanation for the, what the Democrats are doing right now. Correct. They're, they're doubling down on this progressive woke agenda. I mean, it, somebody wrote the other day, Kyle Smith wrote the other day, they're heading into the midterms like Thelma and Louise. There's the cliff, let's floor it. Mm -hmm. uh, but they must have consultants who are running the numbers saying, no, no, you can still pull this out if you get up the vote among your base, right? So th yeah. this is something new, uh, this is my conjecture, something new in American politics. Even 15 or 20 years ago, it wouldn't have made any sense at all, but now they have the technology to know neighborhood by neighborhood, house by house, who's with us, who's against us, and once we get that information, we can start testing messages that'll drive these people to the polls. Is that what's going on? I think that's what uh, was going on, but I also think it's, it has become self-defeating because of another thing that's been going on which is the, the, the radical shift of the Democratic Party to the far left, the right. lurch to, to a radical stance. That creates a huge opportunity for the Republican Party. And the right posture for the Republican Party at this stage is to build the broadest coalition. Because, you know, this idea that, okay, we're drawing a line in the sand, it's going to be a bipolar world and, you know, there's no uh, take no prisoners kind of thing, you end up with no one being able to muster a commanding majority and it's a stalemate and it's trench warfare 
with all the antipathy that we have in our system today. What we need is a breakthrough, the way Ronald Reagan broke through in 1980. And the, the, the ground is set for that because you, we can bring together a lot of, you know, we can bring together the, the working class, the middle class, the rural vote, the college educated uh, uh, suburban people who've traditionally gone Republican right. and independent, and classical liberals who are just nauseated by the totalitarian behavior of the, of the left. And that's the kind of coalition that has to be built because that gives you the commanding majority to make America great again. And to coin a term. Yeah. But part of the other thing here is Republicans have to wrap their heads around the idea that we're a working class party now. And a, a lot of the working class and middle class resent the elites because they felt the elites accommodated the progressives and were willing to you know, embrace their policy because they could pay their way out of the consequences. They, they could, you know, they can make the system still work for them. The people who are getting screwed were the, the middle class. And so they do want a fighter. They, they like uh, Trump. So, yeah. Bill, there's a passage in here in which you describe Trump. He calls you upstairs to the residence, and he asks you about your experience with George H.W. Bush, a man whom you revere, as do I, as does everyone who knew him and worked with him. All right. And Trump said, yeah, but he was responsible for his political fate because he let himself be walked on and walked on by the press. Not me, not Donald Trump. Right. I fight back. He was onto something there, wasn't he? Uh, I think he was onto it in the sense that uh, um, the Republicans were slow on the uptake when it, and, and, and have pandered to, to the elites, the media elites, the entertainment elites, and so forth, when in fact those, those groups are just extensions, partisan extensions of the Democratic Party. And to be accepted by them is no great accomplishment. In fact, it is it, no honor. It's no honor. And so uh, I think uh, Trump was on to that. And, and I think that a Republican Party has to be on to it. Mm. You know, and, and part of what's happening in our culture and our politics is a lot of business executives and others, you know, they don't want to be people turn up their eyebrows at the country, you know, when they see them at the country club because of some position they've taken. And so it's that social acceptance in certain elite circles that, that I think part of our, the Republican constituency is upset about. It's like you could, could I, how do you think of yourself? You grew up, I mean, there's a way to read your biography, this autobiography. Well, you know, that's a pretty fancy upbringing. He says they didn't, all the boys shared one bedroom. It was a small apartment or two, I can't remember one which. One bathroom. One bathroom. Six Thank of you. us, one bathroom. Six of you, one bathroom. That's where we learned democracy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> learned how to negotiate. Yeah, yeah right. right. Uh, but on the, other side, on the other hand, your dad is a professional academic. You all went to a very good, uh, it was a Catholic school, but it was a very good, rigorous education you received onto Columbia. Uh, attorney general at a very young age, big time job in, um, in other words, you look, you look pretty elite to me, but I don't think that's the way you think of yourself. Well, I don't, it's not the way I think, think of myself and it's not the way, 
we were raised or who I am. Uh, you know, I have the resume of someone in the elite class, essentially. Uh, but, you know, when I drove down to Washington the day after I got married uh, and started at the CIA and went to night school, I didn't know anyone in Washington. Zero. No connections. Uh, and um, so I carved out a career in, in, in D.C. But our family was always brought up that don't go along with the herd. Don't um, think things through. Make sure that you don't just adopt views like you're taking something off the rack in a clothing store. Think things through and make sure you understand what you say you believe. Uh, and um, there was a there was a bit of a. I'm, all, I'm also I I think I think I would not have wanted to cross your mom. Right. There is a story in there that you tell about. Uh, you had some new baseball equipment mm -hmm. and some. Neighborhood toughs stole it from you, and you went back to the apartment and told your mother, and she stormed right out of the apartment and found the, those kids. <laughs> yeah. uh, well, the, well, well, they were, you know, they were like 16, 17, and I was like eight. But oh, she took on. I didn't realize. I didn't yeah, know they were, that details. Yeah, she yeah. took on some big kids. Yeah. And, she, and she and she took them. Yeah. She got them to give that stuff back. Okay. The point I'm trying to make here is Trump should have listened to you. You. You understand the elite because that's the world you move in now. But there's something pretty basic about your upbringing. And furthermore, I, I mentioned your mother for this reason. You appreciated a fighter. You appreciate a fighter. Right. Right? Yeah. How is it? Let, let me ask another question about Trump. How is it that this guy, who's born rich, now it's Queens instead of uh, Brookline maybe, mm -hmm. um, and his father's a pretty gritty, tough businessman, fine. But Donald Trump is born rich. He goes to Penn. It's the Ivy League. He had every opportunity to buy himself, well, he did, of course, buy himself buildings in the end, but to move into Manhattan. And uh, he had the money to become smooth, to become a kind of an elite figure himself. How, and it said there's really none of that in Donald Trump. No, he has a huge chip on his shoulder. I don't know where it comes from. I'm, I can't psychoanalyze the guy. That's what I was kind of hoping you'd do. Yeah, well, I, I, don't, I don't know what, what you know, brought that about. Uh, he, you know, he, for him, loyalty is a one-way street. You know, he wants people to be personally loyal to him. But he's not loyal to anybody, just the person who can help him at the moment. And once they're no longer useful, they're flushed away. I can't think of anybody who isn't essentially servile to him in the sense that they completely dependent on him financially, who has a durable relationship with him. I can, they just don't exist as Steve far as Steve Mnuchin? Well, the Treasury I mean, Secretary? I, I mean, think? they have a professional relationship. But I, mean, I see. Yeah. So uh, I'll stick with Trump for a moment. Um, you, you write that the way he ran the administration reminded you of a kind of permanent card game in your fraternity at Columbia. Explain that. Well, actually, you know, there, there were good and bad sides to this. But you, and you, have to, you yeah. write that when it was going well, it was actually kind of fun. It was fun and, and, and actually very efficient, and you could get things done. Uh, and I give him some credit for being very available. Uh, now, so what you mean is he sets up in that little uh, sort of dining room off the Oval Office. Right. 
And it was like a constant revolving cast of characters, and you could never really figure out when one meeting began and one, uh, you know, ended and, and another began. It was just, and I said in my fraternity, there was always a card game going on in this room, but you never could really tell, you know, who, who was, was about to go to bed and who yeah, was just right. arriving. Right, okay. and, and that's the way it was in the Oval Office or in that little side room. And he was very available to his cabinet secretaries. And, uh, and when things between you and Donald Trump were at their best, what was he like? Was there charm there? He he can he can be he can be char uh, very charming. You know when he's getting his way, when he thinks things are going his way, uh, he can be very charming. It's a very you know uh, when when he sort of goes out of his way to stroke someone in order to cultivate a relationship. You know he'll he'll do that a lot. But it's very transparent what's happening. Anyone with any, you know, sense will see exactly what's going on. All right. uh, you know, there's that famous, you know, famous clip of Comey walking over to him in a, in a West, in a White House office, and you know, Trump puts his arm around him and whispers in his ear. This is right at the beginning of the administration, and he whispered, uh, "I'm looking forward to working with you." Well, you know, Comey knew what the score was, you know. No one was deceived by that. Got it. All right. Okay. This brings us to the painful stuff. I'm kind of trying to put it off here, but we've got to deal with the election of 2020. One damn thing after another. The election was not stolen. Trump lost it. The data suggested to me that the Democrats had taken advantage of rule changes, especially extended voting periods and voting by mail, but it is one thing to say that the rules were unfairly skewed. It is another to say that the outcome was the result of fraud." Close quote. Mm -hmm. This is a very crude way of putting it. But is it fair to say something like the Democrats stole the election legally? That those rule changes that were taking place using COVID as a pretext for a whole year before the actual election, that that was where the action was. I, I think the, uh, the, the Democrats used COVID as an excuse to skew the playing field toward themselves. Um, there are th one of the problems here is that people are mushing together three different con concepts. All right. One is the rules you're going to go by. Uh, are you going to have mail-in ballots? Are, are you going to really enforce deadlines? Are you going to allow ballots that you come in late and all that kind of stuff? And they, and they you know, made those rules. They were not adequately fought by the Republicans. They got in place. Once those rules are set, you're stuck with those rules, uh, unless you've challenged them in court and won. Uh, and th that can be unfair, but that's not illegal. Lee Atwater and Jim Baker would have known that they had to put together a first-class legal team at least a year before the of election course. and start contesting these rule changes. Right. Is that correct? That's correct. And, every and Trump never even... He was advised to do that and just ignored it. Right. All right. That's my experience. And then the second uh, set of things are rules that are meant to protect against fraud, such as anti-harvesting rules where someone goes around and collects ballots mm -hmm. and then drops them in the, in the ballot box, or observers from both parties in the polling station. Right. Those, those are meant to protect against fraud. If those are violated, that's bad person who violates him should be punished, but it doesn't necessarily mean that the votes are automatically 
thrown out. Right. You still have to show that the votes are illegal votes. I do think that there was harvesting going on where it shouldn't have been going on. I don't think it's at the magnitude people are suggesting, and I frankly don't think it affected the outcome. Uh, but the point is, by the time, you know, once the election is held and over, it's hard to go back and cure that. The third thing is fraud. That is where people who were dead vote, people who aren't qualified, their votes counted. You put in false votes or you take out good votes and suppress them. There was no evidence of that. And yet from the very beginning, from when he went downstairs from the residence, he started talking about fraud, major fraud underway. And uh, the, the, all the stories they came up with at the beginning, uh, you know, dozens of them initially, we were, we were playing like whack-a-mole. Okay, what's the, what's the fraud of the day? You know, okay, it's the Dominion machines. Okay, it's, you know, this and suitcase. And when you say they came up with, you're talking about Rudy Giuliani and his crap. You know, okay, the, 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 the suitcase in Fulton County, uh, you know, the truck driver from Beth Page to Harrisburg. And they would come up with this stuff, rank examples of fraud, but they were all false. They were looked at, they were nonsense. They still repeat it to this day. I was shocked because on January 13th of this year, the president was interviewed by NPR. He walked off the set, but right. he was challenged by the interviewer, you know, what is an example of the fraud? Now, you would have thought after all this time he could think of his best shot. And he said, more people voted in Philadelphia than they are voters. Now, that was trotted out like one or two weeks after the election. It's totally false, totally false. The turnout in Philadelphia was actually a little bit lower than the average turnout in, in the state of Pennsylvania. Okay, so we've got to come up to January 6th, of course. Mm -hmm. But... You resigned beforehand. You resigned on December 14th. Mm -hmm. Now, there's a meeting in which, excuse me, in one damn thing you tell the story much better than I'm, I'm about to. <laughs> but you're coming to all the conclusions that you just described. There's no fraud. He's lost this thing. And he didn't need to lose it, which makes it even worse, but that's mm -hmm. not a question for me as attorney general. The right. question is, is there, no, there's no fraud, for goodness sake. And uh, the White House keeps saying fraud, fraud, fraud. So you give an interview to the press and say, we haven't found any. We haven't found uh, evidence to date that it was Today. sufficient to uh, change the election. And then you have an encounter, person-to-person -person encounter, in that office off the mm -hmm. Oval Office the in president. the West Wing. And what did Donald, uh, just describe that encounter. Well, I was in the White House for another meeting. I knew there would be a day of reckoning for what I said to the AP. And he called me down, and he was livid, and uh, he challenged me. And I, I said, you know, that, that these um, claims that you, you were, I, I, are making are just BS. They're, we've been looking at them, and they're, they're nonsense. And you keep on shoveling this stuff out there. And I said, furthermore, your legal team, once you... You know, you have Giuliani and crowd there. I said, it's a clown show. And I said, no respectable lawyers are willing to come in and support you with that crowd there. And I told him, you know, I told him specifically the Dominion thing was nonsense. And I went through a few of them, and he got more and more irate. And I said, look, I, I know you're unhappy with me. I'm <clears throat> happy to, you know, tender my resignation. And he slammed the table and said, accept it. I said, okay, and I uh, 
started walking out, and uh, I got to my uh, vehicle in the FBI detail, and I was in the car leaving, and all of a sudden people started pounding on the windows. This was at night, right. and uh, he had sent uh, the counsel and another lawyer to retrieve me. And he didn't mean that. He's not firing you. Uh, but, but two weeks later, I decided it would be best for me to leave. He wasn't listening to advice. He was meeting privately and, and intensely with these people from outside that I thought had no judgment. And, uh, you know, the crowd that everyone knows their names now. <clears throat> and I thought, well, look, you know, I mean, he's, he's entitled to take advice from who he wants to take advice from. But if he's not listening to me, uh, I don't see a reason for me to stand, stay around. And on December 14th was the day the Electoral College met and cast their votes. And there were no disputed, you know, uh, votes in the sense that there was no alt states that didn't have alternative uh, uh, slates and so forth. So I, under the law, that was essentially irreversible. So uh, I figured, okay, I tendered my resignation. All right. January 6th, you're now a private citizen again, watching this on television the way we all watched it. At a rally at the Ellipse, President Trump urges his supporters to march to the Capitol. Right here, we're going to walk down to the Capitol. To his words, stop the steal. Thousands do march to the Capitol, and scores of them break in. There's a melee. Uh, deaths are involved. One protester is shot by a Capitol policeman. Four other deaths we now, it now looks as though one cop had a stroke. That the, the other four deaths are of natural causes, but causes mm -hmm. that, you, that occur under stress. Mm -hmm. So five people die that day. He leaves office. He's impeached all over again. And the charge is quote, incitement of insurrection. The vote in the Democrat-controlled House is 232 to 197. The Senate then acquits him, although this time the number is up from the first impeachment. 57 senators vote guilty and only 43 vote not guilty. He would have, he would have taken two-thirds two of the Senate, 67 votes to, to convict okay. him. All right. Did Donald Trump, quote, incite an insurrection, end quote? No. Uh, you know, because of our First Amendment, people are giving broad latitude to speak, and the standard for incitement to violence is very high. It has to be very explicit. And from what I saw, I mean, maybe things were happening behind the scenes I'm not aware of, but from what I'm aware of, I don't think he incited violence. All right. By the way, did you take a position on whether it makes any sense to incite a, I beg your pardon, to impeach a former federal official? I, I never took a position on it, but I was skeptical of that. And uh, so uh, I, I don't think they should have impeached him a second time. But I, at the same time, I felt, although he wasn't legally responsible, uh, I felt he was morally responsible for what happened. He led this crowd to believe there was something they could do up on Capitol Hill to change things. And also, he really made Vice President Pence the bad guy, and you know you have to go up there and essentially intimidate Pence to do the right thing. If he does the right thing, we can turn this around. So he sicked a mob.
on the Capitol and Pence and the Congress. He may not have risen to the technical definition of incitement. Right. But he did it. He sicked them on the Capitol. And, and, and they were clearly included in that. A lot, most of those people were peaceful, in fact, and right. didn't go in. But there was clearly a crowd there that was looking for a fight. They were dressed for combat. And they attacked the police and so forth. And they should be arrested and prosecuted, people who used force to gain entry. Uh, we'll return to Donald Trump to close things up in just a moment. But one of the themes that runs all the way through this book, it's um, there's a real sweetness in the way you write about growing up in New York in the 50s and 60s and so forth. Um, and I don't think it's just the sweetness of someone looking back on a happy childhood, although that would be a mm -hmm. nice thing to read about. But the way the New York in which you grew up, coming of age under Ronald Reagan, coming of political age under Ronald Reagan mm -hmm. and George H.W. Bush, you are describing a lost world. Then you get to the, we go from the early life of Bill Barr to Bill Barr as second time as Attorney General. And it's, it's in all kinds of ways almost unrecognizable. <laughs> and and uh, You mean the world? The world yeah. is almost unrecognizable. So one of the themes here is the collapse of journalism. Mm -hmm. let's, let's, we've already talked about the Russiagate, that the press was overwhelmingly against Trump, even though there was nothing there. They should have been suspicious of that dossier. In fact, you make the point that up until he was elected, they were suspicious of the dossier. Right. Then he's elected. Yeah. Comey pulls his funny stuff. Right. They drop their, their skepticism. journalist yeah. skepticism. All right. Hunter Biden's laptop. Twitter suppresses the story, bans the New York Post from Twitter, bans anybody or blocks anybody who tries to link to the New York Post story. And now we come to this a couple of years later. Even the New York Times admits that the story was true. That was Hunter Biden's laptop and all the garbage that's on that laptop was his. Yeah. Okay. Which was essentially self-evident at the time. Of course it was. Yeah. Okay. So it used to be that you could, you could at least count on the press to go after a Story. That was a huge story. This, the son of a major presidential candidate. Part of, what's, part of what's going on there is the very sad and upsetting life the guy is leading. He's using drugs and garbage of all kinds is on that. But part of it is he's talking about deals he did with his uncle. And he's clearly engaging, in my opinion, in influence peddling. So number one, it was that your opinion? And number two, what the heck has happened to the press in America where you can't even count on them to go after a story? Yeah, well, regardless of, of whether there's criminality involved in that stuff, there clearly was shameful uh, influence peddling and cashing in on the office and so forth. But I think, you know, if our republic goes down, uh, I think one of the chief culprits will be the mainstream media. They have become a completely corrupted institution. They are essentially an extension of the progressive movement. Uh, and I uh, think that this is partly because they, they've always been le leaned left and been Democrat, 
But I think it's gone further than ever before because there's no allegiance to truth. In fact, I think they basically don't accept that there is such a thing as truth. There's only narratives because their world is in this progressive mindset that you know reality is this his, this uh, you know meta historical struggle, and and they are part of that. They are agent. They are agents of change. They are part of the progressive movement, and there is no objective truth. It's just a narrative, and my narrative is as good as your narrative. It's the way I perceive the world. The stories are written essentially. At the, as soon as the thing happens, you know this is their narrative that they're going to adopt. So there's a, another thing that runs through the book. Although you're a little lighter, you, you do this one with a lighter touch, and it's understandable because this is friends of yours and institutions you respect. But it's the corruption of law enforcement and intelligence. A, a Hunter Biden laptop story in October, just three weeks before the election, more than fifty former Intel officials sign a letter that dismisses the laptop story with the claim that it had, quote, all the classic earmarks of a Russian disinformation program, close quote. And this list includes former CIA directors John Brennan, Leon Panetta, and General Michael Hayden. As far as I can tell, not one of the 50 has apologized or retracted his judgment that it represents Russian disinformation. They've just clammed up now that even the New York Times admits that the story was true. Donald Trump was attacked for attacking institutions and for decrying a deep state. And the argument was that he was making it impossible for good civil servants to do their job. But why should Americans trust these people? Well, they shouldn't. Uh, <laughs> these institutions, the, the media, I, I just want to say, you know, it, it is thoroughly corrupt. <clears throat> but all our institutions uh, are going down the same road. It's not just the FBI. You know, people say, how do we fix the I said, the FBI may be the least of the problems and when you actually look at the government across the board. Our government institutions, our professions, the medical profession, science is becoming corrupted. By that I mean that the truth of science is subordinated to political objectives. And um, uh, the legal profession is becoming thoroughly corrupted. All of these institutions are being corrupted this way. Uh, so it's, it's a monumental task we have to you know, retrieve uh, honesty in, in, in all of them. Um, the episode you were mentioning, that was a crass political partisan move on the eve of the election. Uh, no professional person who was approaching it as a professional would have put out anything like that. They hadn't seen this stuff. They had no basis for reaching a judgment about Russian disinformation. And they hurried out this letter, quickly put it together, got it out before the election in order to blunt uh, interest in the laptop. It was just a part, it was a partisan maneuver. But that is now par for the course. You see, very few people you can trust anymore. All right. Bill Barr and his critics. Here's Katie Barrett. I, I have critics. I'm sorry to tell you. <laughs> <laughs> Katie Benner of the New York Times. This is shortly after you resigned. 
Barr brought the Justice Department closer to the White House than any attorney general in half a century. Barr made decisions that dovetailed precisely with Mr. Trump's wishes and demands of his political allies. Close quote. You were a toady. Here's Blake Masters. This is a venture capitalist now running for the Senate as a Republican in Arizona. And he puts up a tweet just after one damn thing after another comes out. If Bill Barr had done his job in 2020, President Trump would be in the Oval Office today and the world wouldn't be falling apart. Instead, Barr was off planning his fake tabloid tier gossip book. Shameful. Close quote. Who said that? Uh, Blake, Blake, oh, you want to know the name on that yeah. one? Blake Masters, who is, uh, uh, set this aside, he's, a, in my experience, a good guy. He's a Stanford venture capitalist, worked mm -hmm. with Peter Thiel. He's running for the Senate, running for the GOP nomination for the Senate in Arizona. Mm -hmm. And he put up that tweet. So to the New York Times. Has he been endorsed by Trump? Uh, not yet. Mm -hmm. Well, I think a lot of those people have been willing to say things like that in order to try to curry favor with with Trump. But he has, you know, he, he doesn't have a basis for saying that. But if you're going to ask me to respond to that. Uh, yeah, well, yeah. no, I mean, what, what I'm saying is, the mainstream media says you were a toady, and then people, Blake Masters, I don't know what he's thinking, he may very much like to get an endorsement from Donald Trump. I don't know. But certainly there's a Trump camp that says, no, actually, you were a traitor. You weren't a toady. You were a traitor. How do you handle all this? <coughs> How does your wife handle all this? How does your family handle all well, that's this? The way this is rough. Well, she didn't want me to go in precisely because of this kind of uh, environment we live in. But I didn't really care what people said uh, when I was AG because I felt that you, the, in this environment, the only way you can do your job uh, is not to worry about the impacts on you down the road. We, we, we now live in a, in a, in a world where uh, personal destruction is used as a means of enforcing uh, ideology. And people are worried about being, having their careers ruined. And if you administer the criminal justice process with that fear, you know, you're going to be pushed around and bullied by people. And I'm not going to be bullied by Trump, Congress, or editorial boards or journalists. I'll do what I think is right. That's how I approach the job. Now, you know, I just point out that they had the, they started calling me a toady from day one when they saw uh, that I wasn't going to go along with this Russiagate nonsense. Uh, and uh, when you actually ask for a bill of, like so much else in, in, the, in the liberal world, you ask for the bill of particulars, what exactly are you talking about? First, what do you mean I'm, I'm closer to the White House? You know, the fact is the president and I didn't talk about criminal cases. Um, you, you, did I go after his enemies? Which of his enemies did I go after? Which of his enemies did I go after? Zero. I mean, none have been indicted. Right. And, and, then, and, and then the other one, then they always come back to Stone. Roger Stone. Roger Stone, where, where all I said was, we're not going to, uh, where line prosecutors who had worked for Mueller were seeking a penalty, uh, imprisonment, three times longer than what is normally given to someone in that position. And I said, look, he's not going to get any favors from me because he's a friend of the president, but he's not going to be treated any more harshly. And so I said, well, leave it up to the judge. I thought it should be around three and a half years. The judge gave him three and a half years. That means I'm a toady, right. you know? Right. <laughs> and what do you say to the Trump people 
Here's the argument from the Trump people. Look, COVID, he didn't, who would have known anything different about COVID? But you've got those three years when he stood down this relentless and groundless attack, got control of the board. You give him credit for item after item after item. And, um, and you were over there indulging yourself in a dispassionate, just sense of administration, when in fact you should have been on his side because we were, he was no, fighting for the whole, right? You, see, you, you know the argument. Well, I, I, what do you say to that? Well, say so number one, most of the people who say that have not exerted themselves off or really put, uh, exerted themselves or put themselves on the line in supporting Trump. I did. I gave up a lot to go in to try to help this administration, a lot more than any of these critics. Um, number two... Um, Wait a minute, I just yeah. better be explicit for listeners. You surrendered what would have been good, good money. Millions. Got it. Okay. Uh, and... Uh, uh, so I, I, not just money, but you know, a way of life with my grandchildren, my family that I had been working for for quite a while. I didn't want to go in and do this, but I felt he was not being treated fairly, and I wanted to give his administration its due. Um, and uh, I supported these policies. And uh, I know many people think that my role in the administration helped stabilize it at, at a critical period, uh, but. The criminal justice process can't be used as a political tool, no matter how righteous the cause. No one wanted him to win more than me, but I wasn't going to allow the criminal justice process to be converted into a political tool to help him and rush out prosecutions as a political ploy. Because loyalty, loyalty is ultimately to the Constitution. Loyalty is not personal political loyalty to Trump. Political things, I, I've been loyal. I supported the president. But when it comes to my obligations to uh, enforce the rule of law, uh, to say that I was disloyal because I, I followed the law is an absurdity. All right. Um, a little bit more on Donald Trump. One damn thing after another. Donald Trump has shown neither the temperament nor the persuasive powers to provide the kind of leadership that's needed. His political persona is too negative for the task ahead. It's time to look forward. A Harris poll this month. Republican voters were asked whom they would like to see nominated for president in 2024. Donald Trump, 58%. The runner-up, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, 13%. What are you going to do if this guy runs again and wins the nomination? So I've already said and have been excoriated. It made, made the liberals' minds blow up, their heads explode. When I said, look, if he ends up as the nominee, uh, I can't foresee not supporting him, that is supporting the Democrat over him, because I think the threat to the country that is the most serious is the progressive agenda. And although I think Trump is not the right person, to lead us forward. I would support him over any uh, Democrat that I can imagine being nominated by the Democratic Party. Okay. Uh, so, last last yeah. couple of questions. We'll set Donald Trump aside. Uh, a couple of questions about the country. Just in closing. Mm -hmm. Sure. 
1973 Roe, 1992 Casey, there is an argument that those, in, those decisions, those Supreme Court decisions, introduced a poison into our politics from which we have been suffering for almost half a century now. If the court, if it, this leaked Alito opinion suggests that the court is about to overturn Roe versus Wade, and we're in decision season, typically the big decisions get handed down in June, we're just, as you and I sit here today, we're just a couple of weeks from when we may find out for certain. If the Alito decision or some, if the Alito draft or something like it is what the court hands down in a couple of weeks and five justices stick with it, what effect will that have on the general temper of American politics? Is this, of course, there, protest, the, there will be some period of insanity, likely, right? But over the longer term, does this address a certain fever? Uh, I think it, it could be the road back to some sanity in our system because <clears throat> one of the basic problems has been the destruction of our federal system, a decentralization of power. And hence, so the federal system is, it was meant to be a release valve on pressures that can build up in society because you allow diversity of approaches. Utah gets to do something different from right. New York. Yeah, and the people in Alabama aren't you know, made to do something they don't agree with. So, uh, and the, you know, the people in, in uh, California can do what they want to do. Uh, and, and, and that is a safety valve. And what happened with Roe, because I think you're absolutely right, uh, and, and other things, has been uh, this effort since the 60s and 70s to have one consolidated decision made for the whole country. One size fits all rule. It's Armageddon battle because we're, the stakes are so high. This is going to be the rule for everybody. It, you know, we need one size fits all rule made in Washington. And uh, I think we have to get back to federalism. We have to allow diversity in our country. And uh, we have to focus the federal government on what the, the few things it can actually do well. Right now, the federal government is trying to be all things to all people, and it's a completely incompetent uh, operation. It hardly does anything well. All right, last question. Again, uh, this, this comes to mind because of this. It's a memoir of two worlds, it almost seems. The United States in the 1970s. You're old enough to remember this. You came of age under Reagan and Bush. In the 1970s, we got economic stagnation, a collapse of national morale with the defeat in Vietnam and the Watergate scandal, an erosion of our position of the in the Cold War. The Soviets build their coastal fleet into a blue water navy and they establish a presence in Africa and Central America and on it goes. The, the 1980s, tax cuts, an end to inflation, and the beginnings of an economic expansion that will last for a quarter of a century. Uh, a rebirth of patriotism, a renewed willingness to stand up to the Soviets. From 1979 to 1989, just one decade, we went from the national humiliation of the Iranian hostage crisis to victory in the Cold War with the fall of the Berlin Wall. 
In other words, in one single decade, we get an American restoration so dramatic that it changes world history. Is this country capable of another restoration? I think, I think we are, and if we're not, then, you know, I, I, I don't see what the source of any hope is for the future. Our problems are, are huge. Uh, and I say to people, the first, it's, it, it won't be a complete uh, answer. More has to be done. But there can be no answer without a decisive victory analogous to the Reagan Revolution and his victory in 1980 and what that meant for the country. And that's why I'm, you know, we have to stop this trench warfare and, pro, you know, exploiting the polarization of the country. You know, a lot of people benefit from the polarization and fundraising and so forth. And, and we have to, you know, we, ha we have to try to build a coalition. As you say, the way politics uh, has been in the past was you, you want to win with the biggest majority you can so you can implement your program. And we have to get back to that. And that's why I say that Trump performed a very important historical role in 2016 by preventing us getting pushed over the cliff. But in terms of really putting us on a new course, he is not the person to unite the party. He's not the person to deliver uh, that victory. I, I wish a lot of his supporters that are blindly loyal to him as a person, uh, you know, start asking themselves, you know, are th is it all about just punching back and feeling good? You know, feeling good that you've you know, hit the man or hit the system that you don't like and are very frustrated over. How do we make the permanent changes and get ourselves on the right track? What will it take? You know, as you know, when Reagan came in, he had a whole program ready to go. Yeah, it was ready. Binders and binders, you know, of this is what we have to do and a whole laundry list of things to turn things around. And he did turn things around. Liberal was a dirty word. And... The other thing is, the it forced the Democrats. The Democrats came in with a centrist, uh, Bill Clinton, who reformed welfare, who passed tough crime bills. They had to move to the middle. So that's what we, that's, it, it, I, I think if we can get to that point again, uh, we could have a bright future. Uh, and I think the opportunity is there. The Democrats have overplayed their hand just the way they did in the 60s and 70s. They went too far to the left. And they've gone too far to the left now. And that creates an opportunity running against that. Ron DeSantis, Tom Cotton, Nikki Haley, uh, Tim Scott, Rick Scott. If Donald Trump doesn't run, there's talent. Absolutely. And younger talent. I mean, we've had four baby boom presidents in a row. And then we went back to someone even pre-baby boom, Biden. I mean, give me a break. It's time for, you know, we, we have talent in this country. It's time to move on. All right. William P. Barr. 77th and 85th <laughs> Attorney General of the United States. Who, there was one other Attorney General who served to... John J. Crittenden in the mid-1840s and in 1850. But you're the only Attorney General to have served in... Two in, different centuries. Two different centuries. <laughs> two different centuries. And also... Two know, different millennia. Yeah, I mean, it was a big gap, 25 big, years. Yeah. <laughs> right. William P. Barr, 77th and 85th Attorney General of the United States and author of One Damn Thing After Another, Memoirs of an Attorney General. And this book is distinguished in the following sense. I believe it is the only book interview I've done 
where my wife loved the book as well. Oh, that's great. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Peter. For Uncommon Knowledge, the Hoover Institution and Fox Nation, I'm Peter Robinson.